is incumbent upon everybody to take on the responsibility of the world that we're living in. And if everybody were engaged in this struggle, I really believe we would have a fighting chance. Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. You can also find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter, at PolicyCast. Our guest today is Eve Ensler, Tony Award-winning playwright, performer, activist, and author of The Vagina Monologues. She's here to take part in the Harvard Kennedy School Center for Public Leadership's Gleitzman International Activist Award Ceremony. Eve, thanks for joining us. I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, you have never shied away from having political and social messages be a major part of your work. In fact, you actively embrace them. Actually, our photographer, Tatiana Johnson, pointed out that in the director note, director's notes for the Vagina Monologues, the first thing it states is, you are an activist first before theatrical director. Can you explain the reasoning behind that? Well... I will say that the Vagina Monologues, when it went out um, for V-Day Productions, um, the reason I made the decision almost 20 years ago to give it away free for those productions was because I wanted it to be used as a tool to activate people, to change consciousness, to end violence against women and girls. And I think in the theater there are different laws and different ethics um, and ways that we operate where, for example, like look at auditions, right? Auditions are based on one person's determination of another person's skill or ability. Well, in in V-Days, the whole idea is to get as many people to participate as possible Mm -hmm. and to bring in as many new people who can be part of a community of, of change, of transformation, of breaking the silence, of telling stories, of becoming empowered. So if you're approaching it as an activist, when people are auditioning, you would never judge them, you would never exclude them, you would never say you don't get to be part of this, you would always find a place for that person in the process. So I think that's what I was trying to say, that these specific productions of the vagina monologues are here to build community, they're here to resist you know, violence and resist patriarchy, and, and to do the play in the spirit of um, activating yourself you know, as, as, as a person who can act on these issues. Uh, can you explain what V-Day is and how it came about? Yes, V-Day is a global movement to end violence against women and girls that grew out of the vagina monologues. Um, when I started performing it, um, so many women were coming up to me after the show, lining up to tell me their stories. First, I thought they were going to be wonderful stories about um, great sexual experiences and satisfaction. And and in fact, 80 to 90% of the stories were about women being raped or abused or incested. or And it was overwhelming. I didn't want to keep doing the show. And um, in 1998, I invited a group of women to my living room, where all, I think, movements begin. (laughs) And I said, I have this play. How could we use this play to end violence against women and girls? Mm -hmm. So we came up with the idea of V-Day, which was Vagina Day. We decided to do it on Valentine's Day to put the love and respect back into Valentine's Day. Mm -hmm. And it was Victory Over Violence Day. Um, And... That, that really launched this movement, which has been, is 20 years old, where women really took the play mm-hmm. into their communities and used the play as a tool for both social consciousness raising, social change, and raising funds for local groups in those communities that were working to stop violence, frontline workers, frontline survivors who, you know, at, at, at hotlines and shelters, et cetera, who were really 
working with women directly to end the violence. And it really has been amazing to see the thousands of productions. You know, I, I, I think this year we already have 400 places signed up um, all over the world who will be doing shows where they will put on the play with many people in their community. Diversity is incredible, um, central, um, you know, um, of import in terms of the productions. And um, we've been able to, you know, all these amazing activists together with the play have raised, I think, over $100 million over the last 20 years, which has all gone directly to local groups. Now, this is a grassroots movement. Uh, oftentimes, there's a disconnect between grassroots movements and policymakers. Uh, do you actually plan out or have some kind of an idea on how policy can be influenced beyond it, or is it just uh, trying to build that foundation? Well, I think one of the things that it, it has really been interesting is that I think where art can really influence things is that often we get stuck into um, dualities and polarities where people can't listen to each other and hear each other, policymakers, government officials. But when you're performing as a congressperson or you're performing as a member of the Labor Party or you're performing as the president of a country in the play itself, I was at the European Union last year where nine members of the European you know, Union performed in the play you're changed, your policy changes because it's in your body, it's in your being, it's in your heart, it's in your spirit. So I think all of these activists doing the play have brought in so many community members both to be, and government officials and policymakers, not only to be in the play, but to witness the play. I think it's had enormous effect on policy. Mm -hmm. And then with the recent escalation to One Billion Rising, which started four years ago, we are seeing a real impact on policy. Mm -hmm. Now, it seems like uh, artists have a tremendous amount of freedom for expression, uh, but they can face criticism when they're overtly political, uh, whereas a policymaker, a politician, has the opposite problem. When they are political, that's expected, but if they express themselves openly, they can run into trouble. Uh, do you think that's accurate? Well, I want to say a couple of things about this separation between art and activism. I, I, I sometimes think it's kind of fallacious, you know, um, uh, divide. Um, everything we do is political. You know, there's a great quote by Adrian Rich, the moment of feeling enters the body is political. If you choose to write a play that keeps people distracted from the issues at hand, that's a political decision. If you choose to write a play that engages people in the issues of our time, that's a political decision. There's nothing we do that isn't political. What gets designated as political are things that often resist the culture and resist um, the government and resist what is being put out as a political um, status quo. Mm -hmm. So that, I wanted to begin by saying that. And then I think um, I think what's really important is that um, there's, there's sometimes a fear of getting designated as a political person, as an artist. And I think what that usually means is getting designated as a dissident, getting designated as um, a radical, getting designated. And I, first of all, um, think that's what we all should be rooting for, that we are dangerous and that we are disturbing and disrupting these systems that are getting, are spiraling into death in every direction. But I think also that I think the trick is how to write plays and write pieces and write novels and write songs where you are integrating always your um, deeper um, desires about the world in a way which can come into people um, as art 
you know, as ambiguity, as mystery, as beauty, as passion, as and and through characters who are are, are struggling with conflicting ideas or people who are, are are voicing different points of view. But I think I think one of the things we have to stop saying is that we can't do this kind of work. Instead, we must do this kind of work because if we do not keep a resistant culture alive, mm-hmm. a culture that is questioning the status quo, a, que- question, a culture that is questioning a government that would restrict refugees from Syria coming into our borders, a, a question that is always um, escalating imperial wars on people that result in laying the conditions for mad terrorism around the world, a culture that I- is more interested in profit than it is in the soul and the future and the life of our earth. I mean, we have so many things to be resisting right now and so many things to be transforming. And from my point of view, I think that is the greatest function of art. I mean, art is that place where it goes directly into your body and directly into your being, where you can change people. And more importantly, you can save your own sanity. Like, I I don't think I write anymore to change people. You know, I think when I was younger, I maybe had some, you know, I write now to stay sane. I write because if I didn't write, I would be completely mad. And I trust that there's a lot of us who feel this way, who may want to engage in the dialogue of my my attempting to make sense of, of the of the world we're living in. Do you think it's uh, incumbent on the artist to take on the responsibility for whatever political ramifications there are for their work? I think it's incumbent upon everybody to take on the responsibility of the world that we're living in. I think, you know, um, I think it's too easy now for people to to kind of um, put up the walls of denial of comfort and individualism and kind of narcissistic pleasure and, and indulging their own consumptive appetites when all around us, um, 99% of the world is living in racial oppression. We are seeing more black men and women being gunned down in our streets on a daily basis by police officers. We're seeing um, the rise in violence against women through climate change, through um, imperialist wars, through police shootings, through state violence. I mean, what direction are you looking in that we're not responsible for and that we don't have to be struggling with? And if everybody were engaged in this struggle, I really believe we would have a fighting chance, but so many people have decided that they don't have power and that they're hopeless and that they're helpless and there's no point. And my feeling is we don't know that. And I always say when we're talking about like the earth, for example, and feeling like it's too late and, you know, too much CO2 has been released and emissions are out of control. Like if you had a child that had been diagnosed with an illness and you were told they only had 5% of living, would you take your child home and wrap them in a blanket and watch them die? Or would you do everything in your power to save that child with the hope of a miracle occurring? And that's how I feel about the world. Even if we have one, 5%, we have to utilize and amplify and escalate that 5%. So we turn it into a real possibility of transformation. You mentioned One Billion Rising before. Could you explain what One Billion Rising is and how it differs from V-Day in trying to accomplish those goals? Well, One Billion Rising, when we reached our 15th year, our mission was to end violence against women and girls, and we had not gotten there by any means. And although we'd had many victories, and and I think there have been incredible things that have grown out of V-Day, and many groups supported, many conferences, many summits, you know, summits, many huge events, many, you know, lots and lots of groups supported around the world through the efforts of local activists. 
we had an end to violence. And we were planning, and I have to say for years, this UN statistic, which it was also a World Health statistic, that one out of three women on the planet will be beaten or raped in their lifetime, ends up being one billion and more women. One billion. And I, I have to say, I would walk around for days just picturing what is a billion women? What does a billion women look like? What is a billion women who've been raped and beaten on this planet? And I was in Congo um, after... Um, after I had recovered from very bad cancer and I was dancing one day with these incredible women in Bukavu who have gone through some of the worst um, atrocities on the planet and had still managed somewhere in their being to rise and dance and find uh, an energy that was just mind-blowing. And as we were dancing, I thought to myself, wow, what if a billion women and all the men who love them rose and danced on the same day? in public squares, in, at, at mayor's offices, at town halls, in churches, in mosques, in synagogues. What if we just had a global invitation and said, let us rise together and put our energies and rise for what you want to rise for? Mm -hmm. If you're a restaurant worker and you're getting sexually harassed on the job for tips and you're, only, you're making terrible minimum wage, rise for that. If you're a, a young girl who's living in a Tondo slum in, in Manila and you have been um, forced to pay for the right to scavenge and you don't have the money to scavenge so your body is being sold and raped every morning so you get to scavenge the garbage that they rise to protest that. And what happened is when we put out this invitation, it was just taken up by the world. I mean, people just said, we're rising, we're rising. We're, it, because we had had a network built in place. But I think... Dancing is so powerful. It is such a powerful tool. First of all, it, it, you're embodied in your energy. And embodied energy is very, very powerful energy because so many people who've been raped and battered have been forced to leave their bodies and leave their central knowledge, their central wisdom, their central energy. So when you're dancing, you're in your energy. You're in collective energy. You reclaim public space. You resist the forces that are telling you you don't have a right to your life force, to your sexuality, to your dreams, to your anger, to, your, to, to what you know. And the first year, it was extraordinary. Uh, I also wanted to talk about the the reason that you're here. This year's recipients of the Gleitzman Award were Fartun Adan and uh, Ilwad Elman. I, I apologize if I messed up those no, names, you got but right. I <laughs> uh, they were selected in part because of the uh, the the recommendation that you wrote for them in their nomination. Uh, can you? Tell us a little bit about their story. Well, I think I just want to say that I don't know of any two women more deserving of this award. Um, I met Fartoon um, because of an article that Jeffrey Gettleman wrote in the New York Times. It was a front page story on the rape of women by Al-Shabaab in, um, in Somalia. And he described and, um, um, Fartoon's group and he described her. And I, I just called her up and I just said, and he wrote to me and he said, I think you need to know this woman. And I said, I definitely need to know this woman. And I called her up and we really began this amazing journey that we've been on for quite a few years. And I have witnessed um, both Fartoon and her daughter Awad, um, two of the bravest women I know, standing up for women, educating mothers, working with boys, taking in women who've been raped, building a rape center in the middle of Mogadishu, doing things that no one has ever been able to do and, and risking danger, risking their lives. And 
I, I, I think when you see that kind of bravery and you see, you know, both of them, you know, um, Fartoon lost her husband and Uwad lost her father to um, warlords and, 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 you know, terrorism. Mm-hmm. And for them to take that pain and not turn it into warplanes, dropping bombs, or not turn it into machetes, mm-hmm. chopping off people's heads, but instead to take it into ways of lifting people up and helping people tell their stories and helping people find their power and their way and their energy and their life force. Mm-hmm. And then working with boys to re-educate them and help them take them out of a, a pain that is leading them, out of oppression that is leading them, out of poverty that is leading them towards um, escalating violence. You know, this is what, this is the model of the world. This is not the imperialist model, which is based on a language of inequality, a language of domination, a language of seeing some people as mattering and other people as not mattering, i.e. the 1% matter and the rest of the 99% of us don't matter. But instead, their model is we move with our vulnerability. We move knowing that we have suffered the same violence as the people around us. And we are moved to take that pain and turn it into power and love and transformation. And, you know, when we were at our Nairobi conference a couple of years ago, and, and um, it was our African summit for V-Day activists, Fartoum was there. And I, I'm going to tell this story tonight, but I love this story so much. All the other activists were planning their um, their OBR events and talking about how they were going to rise and what they were going to do. And Fartoum had been silent. And I was thinking, wonder what's going on with her. And then out of the blue, she just stood up and she just said, I am going to get the women of Mogadishu to dance and rise in the streets. I'm going to do it. I'm committing to doing it. And we were like, are are you risking your life? Is this really dangerous? And she was like, no, I'm going to do it. And she did. And she did it with such strategy, with such dignity, with such finesse, with such deep thinking about the community and careful thinking about how to bring people in. The energy was so inviting, so powerful that the first lady showed up and joined them, and hundreds danced in the streets of Mogadishu. And to me, that's Fartoon. She lives with her heart, but she is strategic. She's smart. She's careful. She knows what she's doing. And and I think because of the depth of her empathy, you know, one of the things we have lost, right? We have a Congress today, right, that has lost its empathy. What is this country made of but refugees? and immigrants, right? We are now saying that, um, you know, um, we will turn away Syrians because we are going to define Muslims by a small, tiny group of Muslims, right? What is that saying? What is that saying about us? Who are we becoming? Are we, are we not looking at the fact that 155 people are dying every day in Syria? Are we not seeing that children and women are in the front lines and they have nowhere to go? Or do we not care? Does it not matter to us? And I think part of what we have to be looking at is when I look at Fartoon and I look at Awad, every day they get up and they face enormous danger and they know there is no security and they know there is no guarantees on life, which, by the way, is true for all of us, whether we want to pretend or not. But they go out there and they say, how can I reach out to people who are suffering to make their lives better so that maybe in the future they won't feel so angry, so abandoned, so shamed, so humiliated that they want to go and perpetuate crimes and hate on other people. Mm -hmm. And if our country does not begin to move in that direction, I... I, I desperately fear the spiral of death we are moving into. Well, Eve Ensler, thank you so much for coming on PolicyCast today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
HKS Policycast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Lauren Colarusso at the Boston Globe. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School Policycast. You can subscribe to Policycast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter 